Worship in the World is a screen-free worship experience brought to you by Downtown Church. Downtown Church is a community of unfinished people based in Columbia, South Carolina. We believe in asking honest questions while we strive to follow Christ with our own communities, loving people wherever they find themselves on their faith journey. Thank you for being with us today. Keep running till we learn to find peace. 
keep running till we learn to find peace. Just set me free. We come to God to be set free from our sin. Knowing that, let us go to God and confess our sins together. Let us pray. Eternal God, our judge and redeemer, we confess that we have tried to hide from you, for we have done wrong. We have lived for ourselves and apart from you. We have turned from our neighbors and we have refused to bear the burdens of others. We repeatedly ignore the pains of the world. We pass by the hungry, the poor, the oppressed. God, in your great mercy, forgive our sins and free us from our selfishness that we may choose your will and obey your commandments through Jesus Christ, our savior. And hear now our silent prayers. Friends, hear the good news. Through Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We are loved, called to love. We are forgiven, called to forgive one another. Let us live in peace with God and with each other. Amen. I'd like to now invite the families of baptism to come on up to the stage. This might be a downtown church record. We got four baptisms today, y'all. So this morning, Mina, Brent, Sarah and Brett, and Emily and Trevor Moe present their children Lela Alahie Dedas, Smith Morrison Holler, and Calder Benson Eves to receive the sacrament of baptism.
Mina, having become aware of Christ's call on her life, also presents herself to be baptized. Today we proclaim boldly that Mina, Lella, Smith, and Calder are recipients of the covenant of grace. In baptism, God claims them as God's own, welcoming them into this family of faith as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. In baptizing Lella, Mina, Smith, and Calder together, we are reminded of the community that Christ calls us to create. We are encouraged because at no stage in our lives are we truly separated from Christ and the bonds we have with one another. Mina, Lella, Smith, and Calder, may you always remember, you are not alone. Your parents, your church family, and Christ are with you always. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as he delivered to his disciples after his resurrection. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded to you. And remember, I am with you always, always to the end of the age. Let us remember with joy our own baptism as we celebrate this sacrament. So we've got some questions. First to Mina. Trusting in the gracious mercy of God, do you turn from the ways of sin and renounce evil and its power in the world? Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior, trusting in his grace and love? Will you be Christ's faithful disciple, obeying his word and showing his love? Will you be a faithful member of this congregation, share in its worship and its ministry through your prayer and your gifts, your study and your service, and so fulfill your calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? These are questions to all the parents now. Do you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? In relying on God's grace, do you promise to live the Christian faith, to embody hearts of service, of love, and to teach that faith to your children? These are questions to the congregation. And thank hard, these are a lot of kids, so you gotta really know what you're signing up for here. Do you, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, promise to nurture, guide, and support Mina, Lella, Smith, and Calder through words and actions with love and prayer? Will you encourage them to know and follow Christ and empower them to be faithful members of the church? If so, say, we will. Let us pray. God, we know that life is not always easy. To follow your son, to follow Christ is to die alongside him. But to follow Christ is also to be resurrected with him. When the world seems hard to Mina, Lella, Calder, and Smith, when the church, when their parents, when their friends and family mess up and fail, we give thanks that you, God, do not. We give thanks that your presence will not leave them, nor will it leave us. We thank you for this water of baptism. Let it seal your children and welcome them into your kingdom of undeserved love, radical grace, and abundant life. Amen. Parents of Calder Benson, y'all wanna come forward. Got a veggie straw, yummy. <laughs> what is the Christian name of this child? Calder Benson. Calder Benson? 
I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, uphold Calder by your Holy Spirit. Give him the spirit of goodness as he faces the issue of the world, the spirit of love towards all the strangers he will encounter, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of joy, knowing that he is your image bearer, called to shed his uniquely beautiful light onto the world. Amen. He's saying amen is what he's saying. Amen, Calder. Thanks be to God. Will the parents of Smith come forward? you doing? What is the Christian name of this child? Smith Morrison. Morrison. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, uphold Smith by your Holy Spirit. Give him the spirit of goodness, the spirit of love towards all the friends that he will meet, the spirit of wisdom and understanding in the spirit of joy, knowing that he is your image bearer, called to shed his uniquely beautiful light unto the world. Amen. All right, Lella. What is the Christian name of this child? Lella Alahe. Lella Alahe. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Lord, uphold Lella by your Holy Spirit. Give her the spirit of love, the spirit of compassion towards the oppressed, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of joy knowing that she is your image bearer, called to shed her uniquely beautiful light unto this world. Amen. Mina, step forward. Mina, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, uphold Mina by your Holy Spirit. Give her the spirit of resiliency, the spirit of creativity in being your disciple, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of joy knowing that she is your image bearer called to shed her uniquely beautiful light onto the world. Amen. Friends, this is the greatest news. Mina, Lella, Calder, and Smith have been received into the one holy Catholic church through baptism. God has made them members of the household of God to share with us in the priesthood of all believers. I encourage you after the service to greet the newly baptized by name and welcome them as children of God and our newest siblings in Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen, hallelujah, amen. Good morning. A reading from the book of Numbers, chapter 27, starting with verse 1. Then the daughters of Zelophehad came forward, 
Well, Zelophehad was the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. He was a member of the Manassite clans. The names of his daughters were Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, Eliezer the priest, the leaders, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died for his own sin and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Well, Moses brought the case before the Lord and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father onto them. You shall also say to the Israelites, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance onto his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you should give the inheritance to the father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, well, then you should give the inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. It shall be for the Israelites a statute and an ordinance as the Lord commanded Moses. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me in prayer. Gracious God, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, thank you for having me here, for hosting me today. My name is Brennan Breed. I work at Columbia Theological Seminary, of course, named after this very city. And we, as an institution, are incredibly proud of our alums, notably Pastors Don and Lucas. I'm honored to be here myself. Uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, who are joining us somewhere back there, and uh, my niece, uh, Scarlett, um, uh, they have moved here uh, fairly recently to this city, and uh, they happen to live here now. So I've gotten to know Columbia a bit over the past year, uh, a decidedly odd year to get to know any place, of course, but we've enjoyed the paths and parks and the beautiful downtown. I really enjoyed being here for Lucas's ordination ceremony uh, this past spring, and I'm grateful to be back here today. So like I said, I'm an Old Testament professor. Super cool, I know. Basically, though, it's a glorified title for big Bible nerd, so it's probably not a shock that I got really excited when Lucas told me that the title for the, or the kind of theme for the sermons over the next few weeks was lesser known characters of the Bible. I mean, if there's ever a thing that's up my alley, right? But beyond my knack for Bible trivia, there's another reason I got excited about this. The lesser known characters of the Bible are often the most interesting, precisely because we don't already have simple lessons that we think we're supposed to have already learned from the stories. The easy, clean-cut moral at the end of the story is, in my opinion, often just a way to disarm a Bible study, to take the teeth out of it, domesticate it, make it say what we knew we wanted to hear all along. Stories featuring lesser-known characters are less likely to be familiar to us, so we don't already have our defenses up that keep us from being challenged by God when we read them. I think we're better off in the end when we read with our eyes and our ears and our hearts open. Otherwise, we aren't really wrestling with God when we read. We're just coddling ourselves. 
And wrestling with God, well, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. The story of five brave women who confronted God and changed God's laws. They're found twice in the book of Numbers, everyone's favorite and most familiar book of the Bible, right? Maybe right after Leviticus, yeah? I actually love Leviticus, but uh, I'll say that for another day. But even though they aren't well known, I think the daughters of Zelophehad, their names are Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah, they give us a new way to understand Scripture, a new way to understand how we are to live, and a new way to understand God. So to set the stage, when the family of the promise is oppressed in Egypt, and with God's help they're liberated, they move into the wilderness, and they eventually reach the mountain of Sinai, where they receive a law. Now, I know I just started to set the stage, but let me interrupt myself already to address one of the most common questions I get as an Old Testament professor. Didn't Jesus replace the law of Moses with grace? People only followed that nasty, angry, judgmental law in order to earn God's approval, but now Jesus gives free grace. So we don't have to read that Old Testament anymore, do we? You've heard these things, right? Uh, The Old Testament is a God of judgment versus the New Testament God of mercy or the God of law versus the God of grace or the God of retribution versus the God of forgiveness. After Jesus, God is nice now. Well, here's my short answer. God has always and will always be a God of both judgment and mercy, both law and grace. God delivered the Hebrews from bondage under Pharaoh. That's grace to the Hebrews and judgment to Pharaoh. God gave them instruction. The Hebrew word is Torah. Usually it's translated as law, but there's other good Hebrew words for laws. The law of Moses is really the instructions given to Moses. But God gave that instruction so that the community, over time, could grow into a community of love and mutual flourishing. That's grace too, but it also requires judgment when people hurt each other. So if you agree with me that the law of Moses is at least minimally a good thing, then you might assume that it's Sinai, Israel receives a clear statement of all universal timeless ethics. The Ten Commandments, we put them in courtrooms, everyone gets it, right? How to live for everyone and everywhere, just follow it. Yet if you actually read beyond the Ten Commandments, what you get is almost oddly specific and extremely limited. I don't know how many of you own oxes that repeatedly gore people. Maybe, maybe it's, it's just not, not in my neck of the woods in Atlanta. But if you read in Exodus chapters 20 through 24, the law code from Sinai, there's lots of laws about what to do if your ox starts to gore people over and over again. But there's nothing that clearly addresses the hot button issues that we're living through today, like gay marriage, climate change, racial justice. There's a simple reason for this, though. The law at Sinai was given to a very specific group of people who lived in a very specific time and place. If God had talked about driverless cars and climate change in the law of Moses, nobody would understand it for thousands of years. But instead, God spoke directly to an ancient people in ways that they understood. And by the way, when God says you in Exodus 19, God first speaks to Moses, and then all the people show up for Exodus 20 to hear the Ten Commandments. They're all there at the mountain. That's the first time in the history of the world that we know of that a people claim that a God addressed them as a people. You. God didn't speak to a king. Moses wasn't a king. Moses wasn't a high priest. God spoke to a collective people, you. That's the earliest time in the history of the world that we know of that a people claim to have been addressed by God that way. So that's a huge moment for me. It said God speaks directly to ancient people in a way that they understand. And then God told them to pass it on to the next generation. That's the book of Deuteronomy. 
that next generation then would have to do some work to apply God's wisdom to their own situation, which doubtless would be a bit different than that of their parents. So before I go any further, I have to tell you about an important commitment that I have, perhaps my most important belief, a touchstone really for everything I think about God and about the Bible, for everything I think about everything for that matter, and that's this. I believe that God communicates with people in ways that they understand, or at least that they could understand. Maybe they don't want to. But God speaks to people in ways that they could understand. If God's going to communicate with us then, it's going to have to be in a language and in cultural forms that we can already comprehend. If we're to understand something about the infinite God who's beyond all human understanding, well, then God's got to start with something that we know. If I try to teach you something about astrophysics, I might have to start with some simple analogies that relate to things that we already understand. Now, I don't know astrophysics, but if I did, right? If we're to comprehend something about God, God's going to have to start with what we already know, even if it's limited and imperfect. So the famous Reformed theologian John Calvin, he calls this condescension, which sounds like God's being mean or something. But what that means is that God knows that our tiny human brains can't understand an infinite God. So God appears in ways that already make sense to us, even though it doesn't present a full picture of God. It's limited. This is like the incarnation. If humans are to understand God, then God approaching in the flesh of a human being, speaking our language with all of its innate problems and limitations. That's a good way for us to begin to experience the mystery. So it shouldn't surprise us that ancient Israel says and does things that sound a lot like its neighbors. Ancient Israel was an ancient Near Eastern people, basically the area from Egypt all the way to ancient Iran. People had a pretty similar culture. Kind of like today, everyone around the world watches Netflix, right? That's a kind of cultural common lingo that everyone can speak. Everyone knows about the X-Men. Everyone knows about, you know, Marvel movies or whatever. Um, in the ancient world, it's a bit similar. Everyone knew Gilgamesh. They had copies of it in ancient Israel. They knew that story well. These people who made up ancient Israel came from places like Mesopotamia, like Abram and Sarah. They came from places like Egypt, like Hagar. They came from places like Canaan, like Caleb and Rahab and Ruth and the Gibeonites. So it shouldn't surprise us that every one of Israel's neighbors does things that look a lot like what you read about in the Bible. Every ancient people sacrifices in temples like Israel does. Every ancient people has songs that sound an awful lot like the book of Psalms. Every ancient people has wisdom books that sound a lot like Proverbs. Their creation stories, which all of them have, sound a lot like Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Unless you looked really carefully, Israel was not radically different from the people around them. And it makes sense because God was speaking to people from the ancient Near East in ways that ancient Near Eastern people might understand. From Egypt to Mesopotamia, including Israel, the ancient Near East, those cultures were remarkably similar. So the Old Testament's written in ancient Hebrew, not a universal human language. In fact, there is no universal human language, which might be a clue that there's no such thing as a generic universal human culture. So it shouldn't surprise us that the parts of the law that are given at Sinai, they sound, parts of them at least, sound an awful lot like the laws of Hammurabi and other ancient Near Eastern codes. The Israelites were ancient Near Eastern people. So we're shown this again and again in the Bible that the revelation of God to specific people at specific times, like the law given at Sinai, it's never intended to be unchanging, universal, contextless, unresponsible to the inevitable changes in human cultures. On the contrary, God demonstrates that inside the Bible itself, that the laws at Sinai are meant to be challenged, altered, reapplied whenever changing contexts or changes in culture demand it. it might sound like a big claim I'm making, but 
Let's go back to the story. Here's where the daughters of Zelophehad come in. It's found in Numbers 27, which I just read to you. So after receiving the law on Sinai, the Israelites depart towards the promised land of Canaan. The laws they had received divided their future property and land equally among all the tribes and clans. Laws governed the process of land inheritance, fathers passed to sons. This was a common ancient Near Eastern practice. The goal of this land division was to give every single family in Israel access to land. Not land like a front yard, you know, plant some nice, uh, you know, hydrangeas or something. No, uh, arable land, farmable land, so you could provide and live for yourself and your family in perpetuity. And if the land ever got out of whack, one family ended up with more of it than someone else, that's when the Jubilee happens. Every generation to redivide the land so that everyone has access to what they need to live. No one can take that from you in ancient Israel. Well, they try, of course. There's a core value I see underneath this land stuff. That's that everyone matters. I love baptisms. I love Baptism Sunday because you see these tiny little babies who haven't done anything yet. They haven't earned anything yet. They haven't deserved anything yet. They haven't proven anything yet. We don't know who they're going to be. We don't know what they're going to do. And we hear the message that God loves them, that they are accepted as Christ's own forever. No matter what, everyone matters. Well, I, I take it you might see a problem here, though. Israel was an ancient Near Eastern people, and the ancient Near Eastern cultures shared a view of a gender. Well, namely that men were the head of households and women were not. What happens when the culture of male-dominated families clashes with the core value of everyone having access to land? Well, one day, a certain upstanding Israelite man named Zelophehad died on the way to the promised land. He didn't take part in any rebellions. He deserved to have access to the land, but he had no sons to inherit the land. He did have five daughters, though. Where was his property going to go with no sons to maintain and farm the land where the rest of the family could live? Well, it would go to his distant relatives. Essentially, the daughters of Zelophehad would be homeless when Israel entered the promised land simply because of their gender. Does that sound right to you? Well, it didn't sound right to Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah either. They boldly approached Moses and the other leaders of Israel in front of the tent of meeting. That was the place where God met with Moses. So in other words, they showed up in front of God, Moses, the high priest Eliezer, and the elders. And these young women demanded that they be given the inheritance. They said, this is a quote from the Bible, Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. That's a command. That's an imperative verb. Give us a possession. They told God and the leaders of the community to change the laws on the spot and give them equal shares to inherit. Well, if the law were unchanging, eternal, universally applicable, regardless of cultural context, we would presume that the answer for Moses would be no way. God gave the law. There's nothing we can do about it. We didn't make it up. I understand the law discriminates against you. I'm very sorry about that, but that's God's law, and God's law is God's law, regardless of daughters without inheritances or any other things that might pop over time, right? I mean, who cares? But Moses doesn't say that. Instead, the text reads in verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, well, what's God going to say? Maybe this. Uh, Moses, didn't you hear what I said before? I just gave you the law. That was like a few chapters ago. My way or the highway, right? It's a law. Law's a law. No questions asked, right? But no, here's what God says. The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. 
You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father on to them. God says they are right in what they're saying. And that word right in Hebrew, that's a legal word. They're just, they're justified. They're right, they're correct. And then God starts to give a new law to replace the old one on the fly, on the spot. You shall also say to the Israelites, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass the inheritance on to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you should give the inheritance to the brothers. And then God ends in verse 11 by saying, it shall be for the Israelites a statute and an ordinance as the Lord commanded Moses. That's law. We just got new law right after the law had been given. They hadn't even got to the promised land yet, and God's already changing the laws about land. And why? Because the daughters of Zelophehad were bold enough to demand changes to God's given ethical and legal structures. They challenged the law precisely where a cultural practice collided with a core value. They challenged the point where the law did not protect or accommodate them. The law didn't recognize their experience or their existence, their testimony which they brought to God and to the community, to the elders, led to God changing the divine law in order to make room for them, to protect them, to include them as members of the community with all the access to rights and goods that had been previously denied to them by God's own decree. So what we see in the story of the daughters of Zelophehad is that God updates divine commands in order to respond to the actual lived circumstances of God's people. That God responds to the voices of those who speak up about the ways in which divine commands, communal practices, cultural expectations exclude certain people from the community and create unjust imbalances. If the law doesn't protect certain people and allow them to the floors, then it's the law that has to change, even the Bible itself. Biblical law is not a static entity. It's dynamic. It's an evolving process that responds to challenges about its justice. By the way, the story of the daughters of Zelophehad doesn't end there. In Numbers 36, some people say, ah, that law that God just gave back in Numbers 27, nine chapters ago, it's got a problem. It's got a loophole in it. Can we fix the loophole? And God says, okay, new law. There are other practices too. Like in Numbers chapter nine, God hears a complaint from manual laborers who because of their job that they're doing, that they should be doing, it's a good job, they're, they're grave diggers. They take care of people's families who are grieving. Because of their job touching dead bodies, they are not allowed to celebrate the Passover with everyone else. So they come to God. You can read about this in Numbers 9. They come to God and they say, you left us out. So God doesn't say, well, too bad. I already gave the law, gave the rule. Instead, God says, good point. Here's a new law. Here's a new way to celebrate the Passover that's going to include everyone. I can give hundreds more examples of God's updating law in the Bible to reflect new situations. And this includes Jesus himself. Many Christians think that Jesus can, came to throw away the law, especially the law found in the Old Testament. But no, Jesus himself says that he came to fulfill the law, which means to renew and reapply it. Jesus was participating in that same tradition of renewing and updating the ethical codes and cultural norms to better reflect God's core principles. That tradition that Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza initiated more than a thousand years before. Remember when Jesus muses, you have heard it said, but I say to you, what he's doing is what they did. And I believe that we must continue this task of reassessing our ethical, cultural, theological heritages in light of the actual lived realities in our communities. 
This, I believe, is the authentically biblical way for us to engage our own culture, our laws, our practices, our history, our neighbors, and our living dynamic God. We need to keep returning to Scripture over and over again to identify and renew our understanding of those core values that God instills throughout the biblical witness. I hear people talk a lot about biblical values today, but what I often hear them describing are particular cultural practices or preferences, rules. I often don't hear them describing core values that help us refine our culture. And I hear other people saying that the Bible was written by Iron Age shepherds, so what in the world could it ever teach us about anything? Let's just get rid of this thing. Well, ancient Israel had its problems for sure, like everyone else, but it also has incredible wisdom to share. In my experience, God-given wisdom for those who have the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it. I've pointed out one core biblical value today that I see throughout the biblical witness. That's, that's God's promise that every person should have access to what they need to survive. I'd add that this intersects with another core value, namely the one in Genesis 1, we stated several times in the Bible, that every person is made in the image of God and so possesses innate dignity and is of infinite worth for the simple fact that they exist. What other core values would you name that you see throughout Scripture? And where do you see them articulated in the Bible? If we don't stop there, then we need to translate those core values into our own culture, like the daughters of Zelophehad did, and point out where they conflict with our expectations. I think it's clear we're living through a time of immense cultural and ethical transformation. Instead of reacting in support of these changes or railing against them, both or either out of our own gut instinct or instead of following whatever our favorite political pundits suggest, perhaps we should ask instead, is there a core value of Scripture that's in conflict with some cultural norm or theological expectation? And if so, what are we supposed to do about it? I don't think the Bible tells us the answer. I think it asks us the question and gives us the tools to do this work as communities. But it always requires someone to bravely and boldly stand up and speak the truth to bring the case before the Lord, to hold our rules and our community leaders, our neighbors and ourselves, and even God, accountable to the values that we claim to hold. I believe there's life-giving power in God's proclamation of the innate dignity and infinite worth of every one of our human neighbors, of you. I believe there's an innate God-given right of every human being to be able to support themselves and their family or the responsibility we all share to be neighbors and to be our neighbor's keepers, of the blessing that God strives to bring to all the families of the earth. May we find ourselves moved to proclaim and live into the kingdom of God, the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the world. Amen. I love the praises of God in the mouths of infants. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you for having me here today. Amen.
give thanks for Sean and Paisley and the gifts that you offer up to us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Ever-changing, ever-loving God, we give thanks for your ability to lean towards justice. We give thanks for the immense blessings that you bestow upon us. 
just as you bestowed upon Mahla, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. Lord, we offer up our failures. We offer up our suffering. Those who await diagnosis, those who await deliverance, those who await a partner, God, those who await a meal. Be with us as we wait and spur us from our couches and chairs of complacency to be with each other, to be with each other in community as you have intended for us to be. God, and hear us now as we pray the prayer your son, Jesus the Christ, taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May the good Lord be with And may sunshine and happiness surround you when you're far from home. May you grow to be proud, dignified, and true. Do unto others as you'd have done. But whatever road you choose 
Life is short. We don't have much time to gladden the hearts of those who travel alongside us on the way. So be quick to love. Make haste to be kind. And may the God who made us, who loves us, and who sustains us be with us all now and forevermore. Amen.